0: This is Sunny, and this is a Sunny Look at the Bible. Our new study is called Adding Jesus to Your Today. Every week for six weeks, we're going to learn how to add Jesus to every trial and trauma. In fact, especially in every trial and trauma, it is an opportunity to add Jesus. Now, I believe life doesn't happen to us, life happens for us. But let's talk about how that works and how that works for you. Let's start now right into adding Jesus to your today. So I'm just gonna jump right in to my story. And the reason I'm even doing this and starting our study this way is because you don't know this, you didn't know this. This is behind the scene information. I signed my book deal for the new Jesus Plus Life. Now, my first Jesus Plus Life was about 30,000 words. My publisher wants 50 to 75,000 words. So I am rewriting or adding to Jesus Plus Life, but in the process, I've realized I basically wanna rewrite the book. So some of you, many of you have Jesus Plus Life. You have the book, you have the journal. Uh, Maybe you've done a study on Jesus Plus Life. I took the 18 chapters I had and I instead have 10 chapters. They're completely rearranged, and every chapter has to be double the length. And then the interesting thing about double the length is that what was there or existed, I wrote three and a half years ago, and I'm like, ugh, that sounds terrible. I hope that I'm a better writer by now. So I'm actually rewriting every chapter, all the content, doubling the length, rearranging. And I don't even know if the publisher will call the new book Jesus Plus Life. I'm open to whatever. But the concept of adding Jesus to your life because Jesus equals joy. So to me, I need simple formulas. How do I have joy? How do I not have depression? How do I have joy? How do I not have anxiety? Jesus. If Jesus equals joy, I need to add Jesus to the equation. So it's formula, really. And uh, if you know this part of my story, Sean and I started uh, doing a master's degree in leadership a couple years ago. And we had to do stats. We had to do statistics, like stats class. I literally flunked out. So the fact that I talk like I like formulas is actually comical because how do I love formulas yet I can't even pass stats? I was in the class with 18, 19, 20-year-olds in their bachelor's degree from St. Norbert, and I flunked. Sean was like, I don't have time for this. He didn't flunk out. He stepped out early. I flunked out. I didn't finish the class either. I mean, complete quitter. Okay. So when I talk in formulas like Jesus equals joy, so add Jesus to life. Like it is it is pretty juvenile anyway. But that's really the equation to joy, the equation to a good life. So how I got there is that I had many trials and traumas along the way. The introduction of my book and chapters one and two of my book is what we're going to go over today. So you definitely get a sneak peek at the new book. Don't know what it's going to be called. Um, I'm with a real publisher with like, they're going to take the manuscript and they're going to do things. They're going to request things. They're going to edit things. But I am coming with this book to them. And this is some of the content. So the first part is the introduction, and I needed to tell my story so people understand why I think it's important to add Jesus to your life daily, weekly, monthly. Uh, Let me start by saying this. I started out as a high schooler, and I'm really jumping all the way to high school. I'm not starting at age three or two because actually that book... Um, that I will call Twirly Girl. It's going to be a memoir, and I don't know how many years from now, but I already know I'm going to do it. That's when I start back at that two- or three-year-old little girl, the Twirly Girl, and how I'm becoming that Twirly Girl again. But it took me till 42. I'm finally admitting it. I was 32 for three years, and now I've finally come to a point. I added Jesus to my life to get out of denial, to mature, and to accept I am a 42-year-old woman and to quit being vain. So there's, there's also an adding Jesus moment that, You just heard I went through recently. So it took till 42 or really probably back it up 40 for me to realize I need to get back to the twirly girl. So I'm not going to go into my childhood, my little girl time because I'm going to jump to high school. So in high school, I played sports. I thought that I would be uh, an architect really is what I wanted to be. I wanted to be an architect slash designer and interior designer. And I was told "Ah, interior designers don't make much money. Really hard to be an architect, and I had people tell me, um, you know, you should probably be like a civil engineer. Um, that school, that college is nearby, and also, uh, you know, you could take some architecture architecture classes in high school. So I started to do that, and. Then I graduated early because as some of you know, and I will talk about this throughout this study, I got pregnant at 14 years old. And at 15, I had the baby. And I had her when I was 23 weeks along. And so she didn't make it. A lot of times these days, 23 week, Um, gestation babies do make it, but my doctor knew I was a 15 year old girl and frankly, I think he was not as concerned about her survival and also he was worried about a 15 year old's body surviving, um, a delivery. So she did not make it. Her name was Tyler. Uh, Her heart beat for four hours after she was born, uh, but she didn't breathe uh, after she was born too early. And I was in little South Dakota. They did not, I, maybe they had a NICU. I don't think they did. They didn't attempt a a ventilator. She basically was born. It was too early. Her lungs weren't developed. She took her last breath immediately, her first and her last. And then I held her. And so as a 15 year old holding a baby, uh, first of all, I'm not far off from when I would hold baby dolls, and now I'm holding a human life, like the psychological uh, confusion and trauma was real. And uh, luckily, luckily, thank God, uh, my boyfriend at the time, because there were no cell phones back then, I think my parents had a cell phone in the car that was like the real handled phone in a pouch that they would, with a cord, get on, but there was no cell phones back at that point. This was like 1994, 93. Uh, so he had went home an hour away for the night when I went into full-blown labor, had her. So I didn't have to experience childbirth with anybody but Sean in the future, thank you, Jesus. And, uh, and so she died, uh, Taylor died, And um, so I went on to get back into sports and thinking I was going to be an architect. Then uh, when I got back to school, I realized that people were actually happy that me, this girl who was New to the town, because I was a ranch girl who had moved to, to town, and I had played sports, been very involved. My parents were wealthy business owners, and so in our small town of 4,000 people, to be a wealthy business owner was actually a negative. Uh, they called me a spoiled rich girl. They, they didn't like that I um, I had my own car. I mean, it wasn't new, but I had my own car at 13 years old because you could have a learner's permit in rural South Dakota at 13 years old so I have my own car at 13 um, I am viewed as this rich girl I definitely wasn't mature I'm sure that I said stupid stuff so it was a rough go so when I got pregnant people actually there were a lot of people that really liked that that it was like oh, a little rich girl got herself in a bind then when I came back to school um, and I wasn't pregnant and I was playing sports again, what I noticed was that people were bummed that my life wasn't over. So I went to a different school and I lived with my Aunt Judy, who has become my mentor. I talk about her all the time. Uh, She is just Jesus. If if you could take Bob Goff, put a dark brown wig on him and lots of lipstick, that's my 73-year-old Aunt Judy. But Aunt Judy was the one who mentored me. Uh, through my, la- my last year of high school, which ended up being my junior year of high school, I ended up in Bible college because of Aunt Judy. I get to Bible college, and in preseason at Bible college, uh, I played volleyball, Sean played football, and I walk into the cafeteria, and this guy, with a shaved head named Sean Hennessy sees me and he leans over to his roommate, whose name was Sarge, because it was this 30-year-old guy who'd already been a sergeant in the military. And he leaned over to his, and he also played football, there, at thirty, uh, he leaned over to him and he said, "See that girl? I'm going to marry her." He didn't know my name. We had never seen each other before, and uh, a couple days later, I met him through my roommate who knew who he was from a college days because Sean was a sophomore, I was a freshman, knew him, and she was like, "Oh, I like this guy named Sean Hennessy. He's so great." And so then we were hanging out. Anyway, Sean and I decided we liked each other. My roommate was, you know kick to the curb because he liked me, but she was, she gracefully stepped aside. So Sean and I started talking, uh, but literally the second time we talked, we were taking a walk in the park in our college town. And I looked at him at the end of our walk. It wasn't a date. We hadn't been on a date. We'd seen each other twice. This was the second time it was a walk. And I looked at him and I said, if you don't think that this will end in marriage, we should end it now. Now, a couple problems with this. What are we ending? What's even started? Number two, why am I trying to propose to this guy? Number three, I had just broke up with the guy that I came to college with. I just, I was dating him to have some comfort to go to college at 17 years old. Uh, So I had just broken up with him because I said, and this was verbatim what I told my old boyfriend, a week old from breaking up. "Uh, I wanna finish college. I don't wanna think about dating. I just wanna finish college, not date through college, Graduate and then just then start dating after I graduate college. Okay. So we're still, I think in preseason sports, not college hasn't even started. And I'm telling Sean Hennessy, we need to, this needs to end in marriage or we should just end it now. His reply to me and many of you who are on here know me and have heard this story. His reply to me was, can I let you know in the morning? I went back to my dorm with my roommate who had started out liking Sean and introduced us and said, I just blew that. What is wrong with me? This is what I said. Well, the next morning, we saw each other and he acted like nothing had happened. So I thought that was my answer. I thought he probably would break up with me because what kind of a crazy 17-year-old is making the moves on a guy I don't know. Instead, we just moved forward. And I think we then from then on always knew we'd be together. Well, we were madly in love. But here's the problem. Our relationship even was based on... Um, similar things. And you have some relationships that you may have started them and they were based on not great things. Now I'm glad I ended up with Sean, but this is the thing that a lot of our relationship was based on. And we talked about in that early walk. One, I said, I used to be, um, I used, I had a child. I used to be pregnant as a teen. Sean looked at me and said, I have a son I've never met. It was like a match made in heaven, except for those both come with baggage, but when you're young and in love, you're like, "Oh, he's messed up. Oh, I am messed up. Oh, well, we'll never get mad at each other," and that's true. I've never held against him that uh, he had basically a one night stand and had a son that his the mom kept away from Sean. You get, you're getting, you think cheery conversations, juicy topics is juicy. Here you go. Uh, <laughs> he had a son that actually he never even when we went searching for him never got to meet him until he was of age, 19 years old. Uh, and then I had a child with a guy, but then had come to Bible college. So match made in heaven, not really. So we go on to get married by February of that year. I'm still 17. We get we meet in August, get engaged in December. We um, get married in February. And we went on to be youth pastors. To, we had our Bible degrees. We went and did our thing. Sean grew out his hair. What we hadn't accounted for in our life and our marriage is that I hadn't dealt with the trauma of my teenage years and childhood and Sean hadn't dealt with the trauma of He's a dad, he tried to find his son, doesn't have him. Sean also had been in the Hennepin County Jail in Minneapolis for charges of theft when he was in college at, he started out at University of Minnesota, got kicked out of there, ended up at North Central University, which we happen to now be as of this year on the Chancellor's Forum, so that's hilarious, full circle. But he got kicked out of there for um, theft and well, for manipulating the mail in the mailroom, which is is illegal, and then theft in a in an apartment complex he lived in with friends. So he went and he uh, was actually about to be sentenced, but he got. Actually, he was sentenced and convicted, but there was overcrowding, and so they released him. Again, we know overcrowding was God's way of getting him out. So he gets out of jail. He is not allowed to go anywhere for college or sports, except for he gets a call from a Bible college called Trinity Bible College. That's how he ended up in Trinity in North Dakota, where we met. Well, Fast forward in our life, and our ministry, that uh, we've just been fighting like we saw our parents fight. Uh, Both our parents were still married to one another, (laughs) but both had had rocky marriages. We went on to have a marriage like we saw our parents have. We went on to do ministry, but to know that if we asked for help or tried to get help, it could affect our ministry. And so we decided we would... um, just not share that we needed help. So 14 years into ministry and marriage, we're at a church in Detroit. We had, um, it was an unhealthy church to get to begin when we got there. It only put more pressure on our marriage. We had two toddlers, basically. It was a lot going on. I'm not gonna share all of the rest of that story because that will be in my book. And also we don't have time for that <laughs> right now. What I want to jump to Is how we had to discover the root cause of our marriage issues, of our behavior issues, of why I would uh, even end up having sex and getting pregnant when that's not what I wanted to do at all with my life. I wanted to stay pure until I was married, yet I'm a 15-year-old mother. Uh, Sean was not raised in the greatest circumstance or neighborhood, but he just jumped in and tried to be a pastor. I just jumped in and tried to be a pastor and we tried and we tried <clears throat> and you could say we succeeded, but we halfway made it for years. And because when you have talent, you can get by with things that, uh, if you didn't have talent, people wouldn't allow. So we had talent and could grow a youth ministry. We could have, we could create relationships with people of all ages and sit around their table and, and we could, we, we had the capacity and the talent to make it. But inside and in our home, um, it wasn't that abuse was going on, uh, from one or to the other, it was both of us. It was both of us who just figured out how to fight really well. So we fought well and we made up well. So when we finally got came to the end of ourselves and there's scripture about coming to the end of yourselves, that's the prodigal son would be a great one, that he went out and he partied and he did all the things he did. And then he ended up eating in the pig pen because he was out of money, he was out of food, he was out of friends. He'd squandered everything and he came to the end of himself. And when Sean and I separated, we had come to the end of ourself because when you separate and you were in the ministry or maybe like think about public office, there's certain jobs that you can't just, I think there's a lot of jobs that you can't just uh, have an affair, get separated and life stays the same specifically in a position like pastoring where this is a moral, spiritual position. You can't separate and about get a divorce and then everything is exposed about you and get to stay in the same job. So we were faced with the embarrassment and the public humiliation that we had been living a lie. So it was time for us to quit trying to cover that and go and get help. Greatest thing we ever did. We learned how to go to the root. I want to, now I talked about my hometown and in chapter one of this new book, I'm actually going to talk about my hometown and how I wouldn't go back to my hometown because there was so much hurt, not only hurt from other people, but there was a memory of, I was pregnant in this town. I held a baby in the hospital of the town, Rapid City, I would have to fly in to go home. So it's interesting because roots of trauma can be trauma like, Like being molested, I was molested as a little kid, but I didn't view it as that. I viewed it as my fault. But that trauma was actually done to me. For a long time, I got confused that me being pregnant wasn't just all my fault and I was a bad human. That's all I thought it was. I I didn't realize that my molestation led to a faulty way of thinking about sexuality and myself and my own boundaries that then helped me, helped me to be more promiscuous, to get myself in the position at 15. Then later when we lost our first daughter Savannah, which we'll get in in the weeks to come, I had a faulty way of thinking about God and about justice. And I thought that God probably was punishing me. Now this is at like age 25 when we have Savannah and she dies. I'm holding a baby who's dying, taking her last breath. I'm 25 and 10 years earlier, I held a baby that took her last breath and her heart was beating and I'm holding her and I'm looking at Savannah and I'm seeing judgment for what I did because I was a screwed up sinner at 15, but that's not Jesus. That's not correct ways or lines of thinking. I was viewing it... Now, some people would just be mad at God and look at Savannah and curse God. Sean cursed God in the midst of Savannah dying. I took it upon myself. We all... We respond fight or flight, and and our emotions can get in the way of what is truth. And so I viewed it as I'm getting what I deserve, that I'm holding a dead baby exactly 10 years later. But that's not who we serve. That's not God. So... When after um, we go through our separation, which was after Savannah, after we did have Isaiah and we did have Aubrey and we're going through a separation again, I am trying to figure out my emotions on my own without help and without looking at God in the correct way. So when Sean and I uh, started to go to the root cause or the root problem in our life, there was... Um, There was the help there through now what we would call Journey to Wholeness. It was called Life Skills, the program we went through a very intensive thing of finding out the root cause of things. Sean found out a lot of things. We also found out about our marriage that he was viewing me like his mother in our marriage. I was acting a bit like a mother in our marriage. So his healing was to realize I wasn't his mom. My healing was to realize I needed to fight fair, not just like I'd always seen fighting within a marriage happen. Another root thing that happened is I realized that the 15-year-old Sonny uh, became that girl by being a, a five-year-old. Look at this. I just this is just hitting me now. This is probably going to happen a lot during this study. Ten years, ten years, ten years. Five years old, I was molested. Fifteen years old, I have a baby and dies. Twenty-five years old, I have a baby and she dies. How have I not? tried to rope those situations together and in my own arrested and development mind, because I started to create thought patterns and belief patterns at five when I'm molested, why wouldn't those translate into the 15 year old and think in a thought pattern, like a five year old. That's what happens when there's trauma, you're arrested in development. You're that part of your brain and logic doesn't mature beyond five or or that age or 18 months more. So then I'm looking at a baby and I thought I was molested at five, that was all my fault. I look at a baby at 15, I think it's all my fault. I for sure felt shame. I actually felt like I deserved that this baby died and I'm hurting and grieving right now. And then at 25, again, that pattern continues. And I believe that that's why my baby dies when I'm married with a husband at 25 years old. And now, now now, that makes me want to think about 10 years from now at age 35 um, or 10 years from then, and now I'm 42. So, okay, what am I going to learn every five years? I think at 35, I actually was starting to live in health and wholeness because I found some root causes. So let me give you this little illustration because I think this goes outside of my story and can help you in uncovering some root beliefs and some root trauma. Okay, I'm not going to read this word for word, I'm going to give you the gist of it because this will be in chapter one of the new book. But I was... Uh Seven years ago, no, not seven, probably five years ago, I was trying to pull out weeds in my garden at my our first house in Green Bay. And I don't know what, a, I still don't know, for the most part, what a weed is compared to a plant, a good thing, <laughs> a flowering, blossoming plant. Because to me, weeds look like they blossom. I've seen weeds with flowers on them, and so it confuses me. I have started to learn that if they're jagged, edged, or leaved, that might be a weed. And I do know what a dandelion looks like now, and I am aware that that is not a flower, but a weed. But I was trying to keep these rose bushes up in my front yard like the the owner had planted them and I was having a hard time. So I thought I need to go get those weeds out. I go to start pulling the weeds and I'm just pulling off the, the green of the weed and nothing below the surface will come. So then I try to dig in there more and I realize this weed is, all the weeds I'm pulling are huge. So then I go and get a little hoe or a you know I don't even know the term but a little tiny shovel I'm trying to get it out and I cannot believe the size of these weeds and then I realized they might be going under the rose bushes so I have Sean come out I'm like babe I need your help and he could see I was struggling so he gets his he gets a shovel out I was exhausted I fall back in the Adirondack chair and I watch him pull weeds but as he's shoveling the weeds out The weeds have roots larger than what was showing above the ground. The the roots have gone underneath the, the rose bushes, and he's having to be careful to not also pull out the rose bushes. As he gets these out, the clumps of dirt, the size of the weeds, he's making a mess all over the sidewalk. He does get them out, but we have a mess to clean up. We're both hot. We're both angry at these. Weeds, And I realized if I would have went and got the little sprout out of the ground before it became this big of a weed and the roots went deeper, we wouldn't have had such a mess. And it hit me like a ton of bricks that if we don't deal with our trauma or our unforgiveness, it grows into weeds and roots of bitterness. Unforgiveness leads to bitterness, but it looks like the roots of a weed. Jesus shared in Luke 8, 5 through 6 that a farmer went out to sow his seed and he scattered the seed. Some fell along the path. It was trampled on. The birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground. When it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. But other seed fell among the thorns which grow, grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seeds fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. And I realized That Jesus wants to sow seed in our life. But if we have a root of bitterness and the ground is already overtaken, the soil is already being used by the roots. The roots of bitterness will choke out the good seed that God wanted to sow into our life. Also, he goes on to say what I mean by this is as far as the, the seed that fell among the thorns, those are, there are those people who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked out by the cares and the riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. As for that, in good soil, they are those hearing the word, hold fast to this honest and good and bear fruit with patience. So what happened is I had unforgiveness or bitterness or trauma and like those weeds, the roots had taken over so that when I had a child, I couldn't look at Savannah in the way that I should have looked at Savannah because I was looking at Savannah through the roots of trauma, through the the pain of unforgiveness, honestly, for myself. I hadn't forgiven myself. Many times we know that unforgiveness for people, we've heard, that just tears you up inside. But what about unforgiveness for ourselves? And that's what I learned, is that as a five-year-old little girl, I didn't forgive myself that I didn't want a fifth grader to touch me down there. But I owned that because I thought as a five-year-old, I had a crush on that big, cute fifth-grade boy. So in a in a Bible study out in the playhouse where the kids were doing during a Bible study, which we were new Christians and I loved Jesus. So to me, I was in a safe space. Face. so it must have been my fault that I put myself in the position to be touched by a fifth grade boy i thought was cute and I had a crush on so that later as a 15 year old girl I didn't want consoling from Jesus i actually wanted to figure out how i could not how i could um, could never let myself off the hook for what I did at 15. So then it affected me even when I was 25. Root of bitterness is not just for others, but it's also for yourself. And so some questions I'd like you to ask yourself before we get into basically chapter two, and we're going to go deeper into this this today, is do you relate to a story of gnarly weeds, of unforgiveness, or roots of bitterness about someone else or about yourself? Where could you say, I definitely don't like this about me. I've become bitter about myself, my choices, what I think I deserve because I did this and I won't let it go for myself. But also, are there any roots of bitterness towards someone else that they don't even know anymore that you're still upset, but it is robbing the rich soil, it is robbing seed and fruit in your life, because your heart is taken up, your emotions are taken up with gnarly weeds of unforgiveness towards someone else. Okay, the next step or the next thing I want to talk about is then when you find that root of bitterness, then you start to realize, and, and maybe you don't find it all. You don't find all of the roots of bitterness, but you have to be aware that they could be there. How you might know that you have a root of bitterness that you didn't even identify yet is that you watch for triggers, there are triggers and you may have heard of this, but what is a trigger? I mean, a trigger is something that, um, in the, in the psychological world, it's something that sets you off. Okay. Like someone says a certain thing to you or a certain smell triggers you, it sets you off. And that is what triggers do. So it can be hard for us to, identify what those are, but let me say this, and this is something that you may want to write down. We aren't thinking people who sometimes have emotions. We are emotional beings that sometimes think. So triggers are typically coming out of an emotional response. So you can't really think about your triggers or think your triggers to death emotions are what happen when you're triggered but because we're emotional people and you might say I don't want to be emotional I don't I don't want to be viewed as an emotional person well you could be stuffing some of the emotions that are triggered that you don't want to be viewed as an emotional person so you push those down they become roots of of unhealth, and undealt with issues because you refuse to be seen as emotional. Then there's other people that they are very emotional and they are extremely emotional and it spills all over. It's like a bomb that goes off over everyone all of the time. Both stuffing and exploding on people both have to do with emotions and emotions and and strong emotions can be a sign that or a trigger that there's something deeper to deal with. Let me give you an example that I have made as a chart in my new book. Five emotions that are expressed through possible actions or manifestations. So these are five emotions. These are not all emotions. Just let me give you an example. Anger. Anger can manifest itself in yelling, aggression, or avoidance. Anger is not the root cause. Anger is an emotion and and anger is what you may feel when you're triggered and how do you know you're feeling anger it may be manifesting that you find yourself yelling all the time you're aggressive or you're avoiding people or or uh certain like stores or places that you feel triggered another emotion sadness is an emotion that can manifest itself in silence giving people the silent treatment, just needing to be in silence, retreating, um, or apathy. Like you've given up. You've given up on your body. You've given up on your appearance. You've given up on your marriage. You've given up on your kids. we it's Apathy isn't, isn't the root cause. It's the expression of sadness. And sadness isn't the root cause. Sadness comes from something deeper. So that's why we would follow the emotion of sadness to the root but we could find out what causes our sadness and maybe find out about the root by looking at our manifestations or our expressions because what i can do is i can say okay um well let me do this uh insecurity insecurity can be an emotion that manifests itself in a lack of activity or a lack of self-care so if i'm insecure or i'm feeling down about sunny I may have manifested that through giving up on myself, but neither of those things are the root cause. If I gave up on myself, let's go back to the story of five-year-old molested, 15-year-old has a baby in high school and I'm ashamed, 25-year-old has a baby and now I feel like it's judgment. My insecurity can manifest itself by just feeling overwhelmed and like i want to give up on myself and i am a bad person not the insecurity and me feeling like i'm a bad person or the triggers those are not the root cause the root cause is something deeper and so that's why we are looking at what emotion do you have when you have emotion this certain emotion anxiety a lot what do you do with anxiety When you follow that and you go, when I have anxiety, I do this, this, and this, ask the question, why do I do these three things when I have anxiety? You might have a memory that, well, when I was seven and I felt anxious, my parents locked me in my room. And then when I was locked in my room, I started rocking back and forth, or I started drawing. So now when I feel anxious, I draw. But when I draw, it doesn't make me feel better And you begin to unlock some stuff that needs to be unlocked. So step one of any type of healing is remembering, becoming aware. So this week, what I would like us to do, and actually you, you saw me do this. You saw me (coughs) unlock, (coughs) excuse, excuse me, (coughs) unlock a memory. You saw me Discover something I'd never discovered before. Right here live for the first time. Five years, 15 years, 25 years. Never have put that together. Because when we And this is why it's good to have somebody you could process this study with. You could reach out and say, I know you're not in this study, but I need to process this. Or I, or I know you're not, you haven't listened to this, but listen to this podcast and then I need to talk to you about this and let's, let's discuss it. Because when you begin to process, you put pieces together. And so the goal of this chapter and the last chapter or today's uh, study is to help you become aware of present day triggers. So that you can follow them to the root, and that you can find the cause of the pain. There is work to be done, and during the six weeks, we're going to do the work. But the first step of any type of healing is remembering. It's becoming aware. It's you've heard the the first step to healing is admitting you have a problem, right? But you can't admit you have a problem until you until you admit you have a problem because. Um, you're you're seeing something, you're being triggered. Step two is, a fall, is of the healing is following the emotion to the root, to the point of trauma. The product of emotional healing is that you will grow, you will change, and you will see positive, um, positive results. And people around you are going to see pro- positive results. In fact, Sean knows that when he triggers on something, he now can identify, okay, that triggered me. I know. Okay, that just triggered me. Uh, I say and I talk about in my new book about cars. Um, We went into debt with buying cars when we were married. I mean, for the first 14 years before we separated, we would buy a car. We would go trade it in, lose money, roll the negative equity, buy a car, go trade it in too soon. Never long enough did we own a car to pay off or pay down the car. We were always rolling in negative equity on the next car. Our interest rates were always going up because our credit stunk. It was terrible. To this day, if Sean wants to talk to me about a car, I, he knows it triggers me. And, and I have to deal with that because this is what... And I actually, as I was writing chapter two in my book, or maybe it was chapter three last week... I was processing this, what I'm telling you to do today, and I followed my trigger to the root by saying, This is the emotion I feel when I hear Sean talk about cars or we want he wants to do something about our car situation. I trigger. I have the emotion of no, we're not, I'm angry, I'm upset. Um, I feel this chasm between Sean and I. So then when I follow that through, I go, why do I get angry? Because it makes me feel stupid. It makes me feel irresponsible. It makes me feel irresponsible about debt. Then I have to back up and then say, okay, Sonny, you're aware of that. You remember that. Now, Sonny, in the present day, at who you are and who Sean is, your income level, your life experience, do you still roll cars in, lose money on cars, have negative equity. And this past week, when I was writing on the chapter, I had, to, I said, no, I, I, we actually make really good decisions. Do we buy cars without really talking about it? No, we don't. I drove my last car for five years. It had five years of payments. We paid that car off. That is responsible. So when I hear the word car, or Sean wants to talk about doing something with our cars, because now we have to buy, I see my son pulling in, in his Prius that we bought him cash. We have cars that, and our daughter's going to need a car. So we have cars to deal with, but I could still be stuck in 21-year-old Sunny or 18-year-old married Sunny land, and the word car cause a chasm in our marriage. That's my issue. I have got to walk it out and now look at who I am today. Have I added Jesus to my life? Do we walk away from stores and not buy even a sweatshirt? If it's not needed, do we walk away and say, if I think about it again while I'm in the mall, I'll go back and get it. Yes, we walk away. We're good with money. Do we, Do are we generous? And the more generous we are, the more blessed we are. Yes, I'm not the same irresponsible Sonny. I'm healed on the car situation. That gives you an example. And probably today, after we just talked about the 5-year-old, 15-year-old, and 25-year-old Sonny, I'm going to walk away, and I'm going to realize that every 10 years, Satan's going to come after me. So I'm going to look at what happened when I was 35 years old. But here's the thing. Every five years, I get stronger. I get more mature. Because when we add Jesus to our life daily, when we see pain and hurt and trauma and triggers, and we figure out how to add Jesus to the equation, I actually can be better every 10 years by a lot, by a lot. So here's my last questions for you. I'd love if you put it in the comments, that would be amazing. Um, Or just process this in your prayer journal. What triggers you? How do you respond? What triggers you and how do you respond? Number two, are you someone that stuffs your emotions or are you someone that lets your emotions just rule the roost, run all over everybody in your home, your family? So are you a stuffer or do you let them out? And and for me, I'm a stuffer and I know that I'm a stuffer, but here's the thing about stuffers, it still comes out. And then when it comes out of me, It's too extreme. It's too much. If you were to say, I'm not either. I don't think we're being honest with ourselves. I'm way healthier than I've ever been. And I still would say, I I tend to stuff. I tend to want to quit having the conversation. If my kids are escalating and I'm escalating, I tend to want to be like, okay, let's just have it be done. I don't want to even process the situation. I tend to be a stuffer. So you're one or the other. Now you may be very spirit controlled, very healthy, and you know, it's not as often, but you have to identify who you are, are what triggers do you have? How do you respond to them? And, and that might be like, I found out the word car, the conversation about a car, uh, Find what the trigger words are or the trigger situations, maybe the smell, the music, the song, the place in Appleton that you can't go, the place in Green Bay you can't drive by. It's a trigger. And then uh, my last question for you would be, do you recognize emotions you express at home? Because we subconsciously know our families will endure a whole lot more than Others will endure. So besides just emotions, I'd like you to dig a bit deeper. Do you recognize emotions you express in your home? Because you might, if you think of yourself as a whole person and you know you're the, the, the employee and you're the sister and you're, you know, all these other hats, you're the teacher or you're the, the hairstylist, you can think in just that world, like, am I emotional? No, I tend to be really open and conversational with people around me. We work through things. But now take it a layer deeper. How are you at home? Because we tend to be more extreme at home because we know it's a safe space. We know it's a safe place that will be loved. will be loved anyway. So hope this helps. Hope that this gets you going through the process. And next week, we're going to continue to talk about adding Jesus to your life daily. Uh, For sure this week, add him to your week this week. Be intentional about that.